it is a recipe and there are all these ingredients you need and if you're missing a few of them, it kind of doesn't matter what else you do. I almost used to think you could will great ideas into existence and I think you need that will and, and, and certainly that's part of the recipe, but it's not the whole thing. Great ideas will fail for lots of different reasons. You're listening to episode nine of Fail Hard, a by design podcast that explores the relationship between fear, failure, and creativity, sponsored by Adobe. I'm your host, Will Hall. The period between 1750 AD and today, this we call the Industrial Revolution. I find the history of innovation to be endlessly fascinating. And look, I'm certainly no scholar in the traditional sense on this topic. But, you know, YouTube should definitely consider awarding me an honorary doctorate or something based on the countless hours I've spent watching grainy documentaries about human progress. The agricultural revolution, the rise of printing, computers, there's really no end to the amount of party-killing topics of conversation that I've watched over the past few years. I mean, ladies, they love it. They just can't get enough. Oh, God, please tell me more about the Gutenberg Press. Did you just say five-part miniseries? Swoon. Party fouls aside, what's funny to me is that the more of these videos and books that I've seen and read, the more I see commonalities that span across generations. Perhaps the biggest theme is this tension between permanence and iteration. You know, the known and the unknown, and how you balance the two. And, you know, you see this most famously play out, in my mind, in the Industrial Revolution. I know, stay with me, I'll get you a drink. I promise this will be brief. But, you know, on the one hand, you had the British, and they made these amazing machines, many of which still work to this day. But the reason they still work is because they were wildly overbuilt. They were designed to last forever. But as a result, it made them slower to innovate, to implement changes, and to gather learnings. Meanwhile, the U.S. had far less resources, way less funding, and no real infrastructure. So instead of building these permanent machines, they would rapidly iterate, hack together prototypes using and reusing found parts that were kind of held together using twine and chewing gum. So in the span of, let's say, five years, while the British would have made one, air quotes, perfect machine, well, the U.S. would have built several hundred. These rough prototypes that kind of failed, but ultimately ended up changing the world. But there are virtues to both approaches the immutable and the fluid, the known and the unknown. And getting this balance right is a really big part of both business and of life. Everything gets prototyped. It's just whether you're doing it intentionally or you're doing it, you know, when it ships and it's in front of your users. That's the voice of today's guest, Eric Snowden. Eric is the VP of Design for Digital Media at Adobe. And part of his job is to oversee everything involving the Creative Cloud. And so for the non-designers listening, uh, the Creative Cloud is simply a set of applications that designers from all walks of life use to get their work done. So Eric, let's get into it. Uh, some of the software that you oversee has been around for decades. Photoshop, for example, is over 30 years old at this point. Uh, and there are millions of professionals that know it like the back of their hands and have strong opinions about how it should work. So how do you iterate in such a known entity? It's a really challenging, but also kind of a fun 
design problem. I mean, for all of us on the design team, we grew up using Adobe tools and we didn't suddenly forget how we felt about the tools when we started getting, you know, when we joined Adobe, right? There, there were things that we brought in like, oh, I can't wait to change this or why is this like this? I can't wait to talk to the right people. So I think we have a lot of, we had a lot of the same questions coming in as anyone would. And I think it's a really unique challenge because we hear all the time, we want the apps to be modernized, we want them to change, but oh, don't change this and don't touch my piece of it. And like, oh my God, you can never touch this. And and sort of the Venn diagram of like what people want to change and what they want to say the same is a circle. And I think that's a really difficult challenge. Right. It seems like everybody always wants their cake and eat it too, of course. Uh, so what's an example of a time that you've done this? Yeah, I think Illustrator has something like 48 panels. Adding a 49th panel is not going to make Illustrator meaningfully more complicated. And so a couple of years ago, we embarked on this journey to modernize parts of the UI. And one of the things we want to do is we wanted to bring a properties panel to Illustrator, which seems very simple on the surface. It's a modern paradigm. Many other Adobe apps have it. It's not a new concept, but was new for this user base. And so one of the design challenges we had were how do we do that without taking away any of the functionality existing users have. So can we have our cake and eat it too? Can we bring this you know, new way for new users without disrupting what existed? And we talked a lot about depreciating old panels and moving them. And what we sort of landed on was, yeah, like once you have 50 panels, adding another one doesn't really make a difference. And so instead of trying to replace something that was there, we just added to the product. And what we did is we made that the default. We made it really easy to opt in and opt out of, and we saw massive usage numbers. Like, I don't think there's a feature that I've worked on in my eight or nine years at Adobe that gets the usage that the properties panel in Illustrator does. And, and again, it doesn't sound like rocket science, but I think it's really about do no harm. It's really about how do we bring something new into the product without disrupting existing ways of working, because those are all still very valid. And there may be a reason why someone wants 10 different panels, each with different settings versus a singular panel. I mean, these workflows are incredibly complex and we have to be really cognizant of that. You know, in the scenario that you just mentioned, it sounds valuable, but it was also incremental. But when it comes to bigger changes or additions, how do you decide when it's time to break a set of features off into its own software? So, you know, for example, Lightroom. Uh, You know, Lightroom is just used for organizing and manipulating photos. But, you know, you could make an argument that that should just be a feature set of Photoshop instead of its own application. So can you talk to me a little bit about that process? It's it's a complicated question, but I think often when something gets branched off, it's because there's been some meaningful change in workflows. Frankly, it can often be hardware that changes the way that people work in a really fundamental way. So Lightroom is a really great example. With the rise of digital cameras back in the day, which sounds kind of anachronistic to say that out loud, um, the amount of photos people were taking and cataloging exploded. And so there was a belief that we needed a dedicated product to solve this new workflow challenge. I think Adobe XD is another really great example. With the rise of web and mobile design, we felt that because the the shift in how people worked and how they work with design systems and worked across teams was a fundamental enough shift that we needed a dedicated product for that. Uh, Adobe Fresco was another great example of that. When the iPad Pro and the Apple Pencil came out and we looked at this new 
what I've always sort of called a drawing machine. Like when I look at that, I'm like, as someone who's illustrated their whole lives, I'm like, what an amazing, God, I wish I had this when I was a kid. <laughs> like you never would have seen me, I don't think. Um, and so that was a, a shift where we're like, for painting and drawing, we need a dedicated product. And it's not always tied to hardware, it's, but I think it's a, hardware is maybe the harbinger of like a change in workflow. You know, that's really fascinating on a number of levels. You know, like you're talking about, sometimes this new hardware does mean a new product, of course, but other times it just means that you have to take an existing piece of software that needs to now adapt to these new modalities. So I'm curious, as you think about uh, taking existing software, like let's say Photoshop, and then you translate it to the iPad or some other modality, have there been things that you've learned by expanding uh, to these new touch points that have changed the core product itself? Yeah, I, I mean, that's been one of the things I've enjoyed the most about the last couple of years is whether it's Adobe Fresco or Illustrator on the iPad or projects like Premiere Rush where we're taking something existing or translating it to a new device with completely different constraints, right? There, All these new devices are multimodal. You Maybe you have a keyboard, maybe you don't have a keyboard, maybe you have a pencil, maybe you don't have a pencil, maybe you have a mouse, maybe you don't have a mouse. Um, it, it gets really exciting. You've got different screen sizes, you've got different capabilities, you don't have windowing. Um, and that's been really fun. I think one of my you know, favorite things that we've done was how we changed the pencil tool in Illustrator on the iPad. And the thinking behind that really came from you know, myself and others looking back to when we first learned Illustrator. And I think Illustrator is an amazing tool. It was the first Adobe tool I ever used. But the thing you have to learn at the outset is how to use the pen tool, which is also one of the more complex tools in the product. And so any tool where you have to learn the hardest thing first is going to have a challenge with adoption, right? And I mean, millions of people use Illustrator, but like, I, I wonder how many people hit the pen tool and just, and that's the end of their journey. I can actually totally relate to this. I remember vividly being, you know, a sophomore or something like this, the first time I, you know, got into this kind of software and really struggling with that pen tool. Yeah. One of the prompts we had for Illustrator on the iPad was, what if there was a new first tool? What if using the stylus and using touch, what if the pen tool wasn't the first thing you learned? And what if there was something that was more intelligent, that used more natural inputs to give you vector curves? Like, and because they're all busiers, it, it it works with the pen tool. It's not like you have to choose between the two. That was really important. Going back to the whole do no harm, we wanted to make sure that if you use the pencil tool, that if you also wanted to use the pen tool, you didn't have to make that choice. But for people who are new to the product, the pen tool wasn't the very first thing they had to learn. That we got you to that aha moment of creating something beautiful, and then we eased you into the more complex tools. And the exciting thing about that was we found ourselves using it a lot. We found professionals who understand the pendulum better than anyone in the world using it. It, it. it didn't have to be an either or, it became an and. And that was a really beautiful thing where we translated something in a very different way to this new modality. And so I think that was really exciting. I think we're seeing cross-pollinization in both directions. And, and again, as long as we are being additive and being thoughtful about how we introduce this and we're not taking away core functionality that people rely on and we're giving this as an as an option and maybe it's the default option but not the only option i think that's when we get like really good responses because for the people who have always found the existing things confusing 
they're happy, they're excited, like this is way easier. And for people who have built a 20 year workflow on top of something, we didn't change it. And so that's the balance of trying to find the best of both worlds that I think the iPad and other devices have allowed us to stretch our legs a little bit. You know, this seems like a really good transition to something I really wanted to get into with you. Uh, You know, up until now, we've been talking about how existing software evolves and it sometimes expands to new products and new products existing across new pieces of hardware, touch points, modalities, you know, et cetera. But over the past decade or so, as the creative cloud has emerged, you, of course, had to think about not just the individual software, but also how they exist in the larger suite of products. Yeah, so I'm curious, have there ever been examples where you've iterated on one product or feature that perhaps had implications on the system that you hadn't accounted for? Uh, so can you speak to me about some of the tensions or missteps that have come from these forces? Um, I think that's a really difficult thing to do. And there's always this tension between, do we do something across the suite of tools or do we do it in one tool now because we know those people will benefit from this immediately. And I think this is a really healthy tension. It's always leads to interesting conversations, but there have been times where we've changed something in one place and haven't changed it somewhere else. And people get frustrated, rightfully so. We know many slash most of our users use more than one product. Like um, that's the world we we live in. And so there have been times I, I can think of one specific example where we change how constrained transform works in Photoshop. For the non-designers listening, uh, constrained transform is just when you can scale up or down an image and it maintains its uh, proportion. So it doesn't get distorted. You needing to hold down shift to not needing to hold down shift. And so the logic behind that was for a new user, if they place something in Photoshop, chances are they, they're not intending to skew it most of the time, right? They're, they want to scale it proportionally. That, that should be the default. That should have been the default a long time ago, but it wasn't. And when we changed it, I think there were two things we did wrong. One was we didn't bring it to more products at the same time. So if people got used to it in Photoshop, and they're like, okay, that, I, I get why you did this. They would go to Illustrator and Design, which were sort of the two other products that Photoshop users use the most, and it wouldn't be the same. And that was really frustrating. I mean, muscle memory is such a huge part of using Adobe's products. Whenever I watch people using our products, it's like someone's playing a musical instrument. They've got both hands going at the same time. There's a real dexterity there. I mean, that's how I use our our, our products. I used to be a retoucher back in the day, and I would often like not even have my UI up because I just knew every shortcut, every panel. It was like playing the piano. And Anytime we mess with that, we have to be really, really careful. We had a good reason for wanting to do it. We saw new users being confused by the way something worked. We wanted to help them. Um, and this goes back to the comments I'm making earlier about like do no harm being sort of a key tenant for us. It's like if we were doing this today instead of a handful of years ago, I would ask like, well, what happens with the existing users? What happens when shift gets held down. And, and obviously we, we thought about that at the time, but I think we we didn't go that final step. Like we, there was a missing piece there that we didn't quite get. And the, the Properties Family Illustrator is a great example of how we thought about that differently. We made sure that for existing users, 
nothing changed if they didn't want it to. Yeah. And, you know, there are just so many variables here that you're constantly having to balance. And again, there's no way you could ever expect or hope that you're going to be able to actually solve all of those problems perfectly the first time. I mean, they're just too complicated. And that actually leads me to a follow-up question. And, you know, with this one, let's go a little bit higher level because this is something I think about quite a lot. And it's unique to software, but is also foreign to so many people outside of this world. And it's that every single tech company, I mean, you guys, Apple, Google, literally everybody, we ship software that we know have bugs in it. And it's not like anyone is hiding it or anything. I mean, that's why there are versions with every piece of software. It just comes with a territory. You know, every tech company is always optimizing and working towards, you know, a backlog for everything. And in some ways, that's being okay with not being perfect. So could you speak to me a bit about how you think about that balance between, you know, perfection and iteration with releases? No, I, I think that's, no, I think that's a really interesting question. I think because I, we think about this and talk about this all the time, because often the first version of something we ship, and when I say we, I mean the industry, I don't specifically mean Adobe, is not our vision, like it's almost never the full vision realized. But I think it's really a balance between that desire to be perfect and the desire to actually help people today, right? And so we have users who are struggling or have a challenge and we're like, well, God, we're only shipping half of these features, but these you know, 10,000 people over here, it's gonna change our lives tomorrow. And maybe these, you know, 100,000 over here are going to have to wait a couple of months. But do we wait? You know, this really brings me back to the beginning when we were talking about the Industrial Revolution and the history of innovation and those tensions that exist between perfection and building for permanence versus simply being iterative and embracing imperfection. Of course, that's how we think about software. And yeah, that's a pretty good way to run a business. But I also think that's the right way to think about our lives as well. I'm certainly personally guilty of trying to premeditate my entire life, of trying to pre-write an autobiography or something before a life has even been lived. But again, there's this tension because of course we all have a vision for our lives. That's great. And we have goals and we have knowns that we're building against, but creating space both mentally and physically that allows us to ship our lives in versions, so to speak, 1.0, 2.0, etc., that are not perfect. And being okay with that is a pretty profound idea. If those countless hours of YouTube documentaries on innovation has taught me anything, it's this. That perfect isn't real, but incremental progress can change the world. And you know, it just seems that paradoxically, the more that we embrace imperfection, the closer we actually get to the ideal. So I know we're coming up on time and, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to catching up with you in a few months at Adobe Max, of course. But uh, until then, any closing thoughts around products? Yeah, I mean, I think the the beauty of product development, the thing I love about it is that the thing you start out with is never where you end up. And I think 
you know, that first version may not be the thing that helps every single user, but if you can start chipping away with a small subset of users and helping them a little bit and growing that number larger and larger and helping more people, I think that's really exciting. And frankly, I think that's the real tension in product development is like, how many people do we need to help before we're ready? <laughs> I think it's maybe that's a different way to look at it than some other people do. But there are definitely times where we put stuff out the door where like, it doesn't make it worse for most people. And for this number of people, it's going to make their lives meaningfully better. And we know that that's like the first step along a journey. But let's take that first step now and let's not wait, right? Let, let's help those people that we can help today, today. I'd like to thank Eric for sharing his thoughts with us. If you'd like to reach out to him, you can do so on Instagram or Twitter at Eric Snowden, S-N-O-W-D-E-N. Fail Hard is sponsored by Adobe. Everything associated with this podcast is enabled by the Creative Cloud, and we couldn't be more grateful for their support. Thank you, Eric and Adobe. We're releasing new episodes of Fail Hard every Tuesday, so be sure to hit subscribe now to stay up to date. Also, thanks for all the questions that you've been sending. It's super great to see and hear from you. Uh, So please keep those coming in as we're going to include those in a coming episode. Uh, If you have a question or thought for us, uh, you can simply record it on your phone's voice memo app and email it to me, hello at willhall.co. Hungry for more by design content? Then check out our website, americabydesigntv.com. There you can see the entire first season of our television show, America by Design, as well as watch behind-the-scenes footage and liner notes from previous podcast episodes. We'll see you next Tuesday. That's the extent of my computer hood.